You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing good. Hashtag ain't shit going on. Hashtag ain't shit going on. Uh, you know, a guy could really get used to this format where we just sit here and answer listener mail questions the whole time. What you're saying, I hear what you're saying, and what you're saying is a guy could get used to the format that requires us to do very little pre-planning. Even less pre-planning than we normally do, and we normally do almost no pre-planning. Right. So what you're saying is that we're already a show where two guys just sit in front of a couple of microphones and just bullshit for an hour. At at my kitchen table. Let's not forget the important details here. Anything that Because some people, Ben, some people... Record their podcasts at like radio stations, oh, studios, and whatnot. Fancy, yeah. We just uh, must be nice. We just sit here at the table. That's right, and uh, like the working jaw. class gents we That's are, right. the working class right. heroes, right here at Chad Dunn's kitchen table on the north side of Missoula, Montana, where anything could happen, frankly. Uh, and we seem to be drifting toward a format that is even more heavy on the bullshit, which I, for one, embrace. Well, and you know what? When hashtag shit going on, we'll we'll segue back into our normal uh, format. For this week, we got a ton of listener mail, like we always do. Uh, we got some listener mail on some different topics, and we got some listener mail on some more random topics. So I think probably what we're going to do is just work through as many of those as we can, try to talk about some of the uh, late-breaking stuff that just happened today on Monday, Uh Get, get through some of those topics that we re, uh, received a lot of mail about and then, you know, just go with a free-for-all from there. The big question, do you think that this will be really heartbreaking for those people out there hoping us hoping to see us do a deep dive from the top down of the, the fight card at UFC Fight Night 85? I hope not because if I had to guess, I would say we're not going to get there. The people are like, you're telling me there's not a round dedicated to Johnny Case versus Jake Matthews? What well, is this? Ben, I'll this tell you outrage. this. I'll tell you what the metrics say. Okay. And that is that we received, as we always do, a shitload of listener mail and zero questions about this weekend's Fight Night event. Nope. Not even a question about Mark Hunt and Frank Mir, huh? Not to my knowledge. I mean, there might be one on this list. If we encounter it, we encounter it. If not, hashtag ain't shit going on. There's another glimpse into just how little planning we've done for today's show. Uh, we'll see how little planning you did as I start to read this advertisement for our Fulton and Rourke sponsorship. Wow, you're not even going to give me a chance to pull up my Fort Fulton and Rourke script, huh? Okay. This episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is once again brought to you by Fulton and Rourke. As we told you last week, Fulton and Rourke is back for its second tour of duty as the flagship sponsor for the CME. They're cool guys and a very cool business based in North Carolina, so we encourage you to get out and support them. In case you've missed it, your friend and mine, Ben Folks, might be about to tell us about some new Fulton and Rourke products. 
that well, just hit the streets. Chad, Fulton & Rourke just launched a new limited reserve edition to their line of solid wax-based colognes. It's called Escalante. Escalante. I have it on good authority that friend of the podcast, Suzanne Davis, is about to get some Escalante in her life via her man friend. Nice. From Dr. Vet? From Dr. Vet himself. Nice. Hashtag about Dr. About to be rolling Vet. around smelling like Haitian vetiver and Italian bergamot and balsam for a bold yet dry fragrance that is sure to leave an impression. On Suzanne Davis. <laughs> now, see, my favorite Fulton & Rourke solid cologne fragrance is the Tybee. I like that one. Bless that's, you. That's the one I'll put on. Uh, they also just released their cologne refill, so you can keep your handy shatterproof Fulton & Rourke cologne square for life. When your old supply runs out, just buy a refill and pop it right in the same metal square container. Keep those additions onto the other great, great products we've told you about in the past, like the hand-milled bar soap, the foamless shave cream, and the face wash, and you start to see why the CME is down with Fulton & Rourke. On top of that, there's a new promo code just for CME listeners starting today. Enter the promo code CME2016, all one word, and get $15 off any purchase of $75 or more. Again, that's at the website Fulton & Rourke. Rourke is spelled R-O-A-R-K. Uh, dot com and the promo code is CME2016, all one word. Before we get going, do you think we should dispel these Sir Nigel Longstock rumors? Yeah. So Sir Nigel comes on the podcast last week to do Master Tweet Theater, as he often does. It had been a while since we've seen him. Uh, not to let people too much behind the curtain, but Sir Nigel Longstock is often sick. Often. He and has, he doesn't even have any kids, he which has is the amazing thing. the true constitution of an English theatricalist, <laughs> let's just say. His, are you saying his humors might be out of whack? That's right, yeah. Uh, so last week he comes on, he's just getting over a cold, as he almost always is, and attempts to make what I would describe as an ill-advised joke about his own mortality, where he says, this will probably be the last Master Tweet Theater Parenthetically, he didn't say this part, but because I'm going to die of my disease. Right. As soon as he said that, I was like, oh boy, all week we're going to get email and Twitter messages from people worried that this is actually the last Master Tweet Theater. Right. And we did. And maybe some of them are worried and maybe others are hopeful that it would be the last Master Tweet Theater. Master Tweet Theater is the most divisive recurring segment on the Co-Main Event podcasts. Well, it seems like you either love it or hate it, and there's not much middle ground. important to note is that at the time, Sir Nigel was getting over a sickness, and they were just joking about him maybe dying, and then he got sick again. Yeah, he's been sick again in the last week with right. a new sickness. He was supposed to be at our scotch tasting on Saturday night, couldn't make it Yeah, no, due to he his sent sickness. his proxy. He did. He sent his proxy, uh, and I think it was probably better for everyone involved that he wasn't there. Because um, I had a great time, even though you did sexually assault me. And you were scared about how you ma it made you feel? I was scared about some things. It, I gave you what I would describe as a collegial pat on the backside as we squeezed by each other in tight spaces. And you clearly did not give me the room to pass. So I, I gave you the little... I was a little like, check up there. Hey, buddy. Hey, the nice shot. Good game. By the TSA here. They they have some intelligence on me that that tells them that I got a bomb stashed between my butt cheeks. Is that what's going on here? It was a collegial slap. Don't let Chad Dundas around the scotch. That's what we take away from <laughs> this. You ready lesson. to do this Let's now? Let's do it. Can we do this? Let's do it. Let's start with this one from Travis Dunlap, who writes, So Matt Mitrione, oh, I'm sorry. So Matt Matrione, he writes, is headed 
is heading to the Scott Coker show. Does this, along with the recent signing of Ben Henderson, help to make Bellator seem like a legitimate com- competitor to the UFC, or does it just solidify the promotion as UFC light discourse if you want? So this just happened today. Uh, the word broke that Matt Matrione is on his way to the Bellator cage uh, after what seemed like, I don't know if I want to say acrimonious split from the UFC, but uh, also not totally... They probably didn't give him a collegial pat on the backside on his way out the door, right. let's just say. Right. And, you know, he did that uh, interview before his last fight uh, where he showed up with R.L. Hawani. Uh, he was barefoot on media day because he couldn't wear his, his Jordans in there on account of the Reebok deal. Uh, and they didn't have any Reeboks to give him because he probably wears like a size 15 or something. And so he's just sitting there barefoot. And this is mentioned in the Bellator press release sent out to announce his signing uh, Cheeky-ass Bellator. Yeah, I, I dig it. Prior to his last fight with his former promotion, not even going to name him, not even going to speak the UFC's name, Mitrion was forced to participate in a media session barefoot as his shoes didn't adhere to the strict company uniform policy. Notice they call it a uniform. He will have no such problems at Bellator where he is free to secure his own sponsors and keep his feet warm with the footwear of his choosing. Oh, see, that tells me they're just having fun over at the Bellator office. And they figured that no one would read to, like, the sixth paragraph of the press release announcing the signing of Matt Mitrione. Well, you know, as for the question, does this further move Bellator further toward becoming a serious UFC competitor... I'm not sure that it does, and I'm not sure that this one signing is one of those that's supposed to, necessarily. Because right. we saw kind of what Matt Mitrione's ceiling was going to be in the UFC, I feel like. It didn't seem like anybody was saying, like, all right, Matt Mitrione's right there, ready for a title shot. Um, but it does seem like he's one of those guys you could plug in into the weird shit that's already going on at Bellator and feel like, all right, Matt Mitrione and uh, Kimbo Slice... Uh, or Matt Mitrione Dada 5000 or, or whatever. It seems like he could fit in fairly well for that, but it doesn't seem like he's going to help us figure out who the best heavyweight in the world is. Right. He's a nice little signing for Bellator, let's say. Uh, and as a guy who is charged with the task of creating uh, weekly mixed martial arts content as my, as my job, I can say that it is very tempting after every Bellator free agent signing to ask, is this does this help make Bellator seem like a legitimate competitor to the UFC? But there's only so many times you can ask that question, and only so many times you can write that story. In our case, uh, before it just becomes a little rote, and I don't think that's going to be true for a while. Uh, but it, I mean, this is a nice little signing for Bellator, and I look forward to. I assume Matt Matrione got it guaranteed in his contract that he would rematch with Kimbo Slice uh, and probably tear through him. Uh, your boy Kimbo might be sitting down for a little while. Now. He might be taking a, a you breather. You know what I was reminded of when I read through the press release, though, actually, uh, is, oh, yeah, I totally forgot Bobby Lashley's over there in the Bellator. Oh, well, boy. You... Matt Matrione versus Bobby Lashley? I mean, given what we know about uh, Bobby Lashley's matchmaking, I have a hard time believing that he would accept that Hashtag particular matchup. Doesn't it, I mean, doesn't it feel like Matt Mitrione could just run through most of the people over at Bellator? Like, they probably have a nameless, faceless Russian heavyweight champion over there who might be able to beat Matt Mitrione. But you like, speak now of Vitaly Minikov? Sure, why not? Uh, but most of the other people, like Matt Mitrione mincemeat, probably, right? 
Check Congo. They have a history. Yeah, yeah, that, that might be a decent fight. Do you want to use this question as a segue into the questions we got about Kimbo Slice, Dada 5000, and Ken Shamrock and, and Hoist Gracie? Questions still coming in, by the way, really? several weeks after the event. Well, there, there, we did get a new wrinkle in it. It did, so, yeah, for sure. Okay, uh, we'll just go right to that from uh, Jeff Snow, who asks, So our homie Kimbo gets popped for his fight with Dada 5000. One question. If Dada 5000 would have died, would Bellator cease to exist? Please discourse. So this is like the real world example of the doomsday scenario that we always lay out when we're talking about why you shouldn't be able to take PEDs in combat sports. Because when we're having that discussion, I feel like we always say, you know, this is a sport where guys punch, kick and knee each other in the head. It would be bad if someone if someone was killed or suffered a terrible injury in the cage, and then afterward it turned out that uh, his opponent was was jacked up on performance enhancers. I don't know how that would play in the mainstream media. Now, as I believe the pithy line that you said to me at the scotch tasting, like we don't know exactly what Kimbo Slice tested positive for, but if the thing he took was a performance enhancer, he needs to get his money back because it didn't work. So, right. So it's not, I don't know that you can fully say that Dada 5000 almost died because of the actions of Kimbo Slice. No. I mean, he died or almost died, you know, adjacent to the actions of Kimbo <laughs> Slice. That's what we can uh, say here. Nevertheless, it still seems like it would have been bad for Bellator for a death to have happened during this fight and then for it to turn out that at least one of the dudes was jacked up on the on the sauce. Although we just still don't know, right? What they That's tested true. positive for because it happened in Texas, and Texas just can't can't really handle doing this shit the way other state athletic commissions do it. So uh, they've withheld the the names of the substances. For all we know, you know, maybe Kimbo Slices was smoking a little weed. Do you think he popped for Molly? Now that would be awesome. That's now that's the kind of thing where. I feel like I need the drug in question here to help me make this thing make sense what we saw in that fight one way or another either it could be something that would you know inhibit your cardiovascular endurance or something that would just make you go out there and not know what the hell what was going on because if it just turns out that it comes back and it's like synthetic testosterone or like nandrolone or something then i'll be a little disappointed because man you need to talk to your supplier yeah cycled off that stuff too soon i think <laughs> Uh, in the case of Ken Shamrock, I'm pretty sure it was just straight old school PCP, right? That he smoked, uh, like he, he emptied out the tube of a Bic pen and just smoked uh, some PCP straight off a piece of tinfoil, probably behind the bumper of someone's 81 vet, right? In the wow. parking lot behind that, the... That's just how I imagine Ken Shamrock really getting it done. really detailed speculation going on. Next question from Nigel Stanton. He writes, with the news of Ken Shamrock and Kimbo Slice both testing positive after their respective Bellator fights, the most surprising thing about it to me was learning that the Texas Department of Licensing and Regulations maximum punishment for a positive test is a whopping three months suspension and a $5,000 fine. That got me thinking. If you're fighting in Texas, Texas and getting paid as much as Kimbo and Ken presumably got paid, why wouldn't you take as many performance enhancing drugs as you possibly could? Why not turn yourself into a human pincushion from steroid injections? Take Take a handful of Adderall and wash it down with a can of Red Bull before you walk out. That's uh, the hell or what the hell kind of deterrent is three months and 5K. Please discuss. Now, see, from where I'm standing, 
uh, you could have stopped this question right after the most surprising thing about it was learning that they tested positive by the Texas Department of Licensing and Regulations. <laughs> oh, you could have just stopped right there. I see. Because yeah. it seems to me, Ben, in a world where dudes are going to start testing positive for stuff in Texas, it's the end of days, man. It's like a sign of the apocalypse. <laughs> or a sign that... And if you need to make a freak show fight, where are you going to go now? If Texas is burned. Yeah, going to have to move straight to that that barge. Uh, floating out there in the Gulf of Mexico. International waters. Bellator 155 International Waters. Woodwatch. Hashtag, Hashtag Woodwatch. Woodwatch. I feel like though we did not adequately address the question, what, like, what if, like, let's say for the sake of argument that Kimbo Slice had been on some performance enhancers and Dada 5000 then did die. And say it wasn't even like, you know, he didn't die from being punched in the head, but he died from, you know, his heart stopping or kidney failure or whatever it was that happened to him kind of seemed to be mostly his own doing do you think that people would make that fine distinction people who'd be like well wait a minute if you go back and see the fight kimbo slice didn't really kill the guy kimbo slice was just fighting a guy who died um <laughs> so we shouldn't really take into account his performance enhancing drug use if in fact that's what it was or do you think that the just broad message that would get out to the masses would be fighter on peds kills opponent in the cage and would it be just the worst possible scenario for Bellator to the point that it might even shut the whole show down? It would be pretty close because you've got to think that most people would learn about it and maybe not engage with it any more than like the crawl at the bottom of ESPN2 while right. they're on the treadmill at the gym. And you got to think that the crawl would say something like fighter whose opponent died at Bellator 159 test positive for PEDs or something like that. Uh, so I, I'm not sure that the, that the nuance would would – not sure that the nuance would sink in for a lot of people. Uh, and we talked about this on the podcast right after this happened, that Bellator got away with one here, and uh, perhaps they should feel lucky and let this warning shot across the bow influence future decisions. Whether or not that happens remains to be seen, but maybe not only did they get away with one, maybe they got away with two. Okay. I don't know. Well, do you, I mean... Maybe this is the turning point, and maybe we'll just turn around, and you'll see your boy Matt Matreon versus Dada 5000, and you'll realize <laughs> we learn nothing. We learn nothing. Either that or it's going to be all Eduardo Dantes versus whatever other bantamweights they got over there. Just slowly killing Bellator yes. rather than all at once. Uh, where do we go from here? Wherever you want, man. Okay, the world we, is your oyster. Do we dip into the random uh, assortment of questions? Because I noticed when you when you sent these to me, you put them under some headings, and then you have just one lab labeled random, which I appreciate. Yeah, let's do some randos. Okay. Um, here's one from Mark DeLuau. There's no way I pronounced that right. Hello, dudes. Since there is a hashtag ain't shit going on, and I'm sure you're both overjoyed with the prospect of seeing Paige Van Zant on Dancing with the Stars, please discourse the shit out of your personal favorites that you would like to see on meaningless celebrity reality shows. I, for one, get strange feelings in my nipples at the prospect of seeing Nate Diaz on The Price is Right. Thank you. <laughs> now, Nate Diaz and Nick Diaz, I assume wearing matching shirts like everyone does on The Price is Right, would be pretty outstanding. Uh, I didn't, Nate Diaz went on extra this past week. I didn't see it, but, uh, that surprised me. That was something that it seemed like we would never see. Well, here's something about Nate Diaz on The Price is Right. Do you think that Nate Diaz has an uncommonly strong grasp on what normal everyday household items cost, like more so than, like, say, a celebrity, a real rich celebrity fighter like Conor McGregor? 
or does he just have no fucking clue? Well, okay, that's an inter- that's a deep question, my friend, because as we know, the Diaz don't have motherfuckers coming by every hour on the hour to pamper their shit out. They didn't go to I school think, for that shit. I think we can say without hesitation that the Diaz brothers are probably buying their own groceries now. But probably how also often buying kind of weird groceries, Yeah, I was right? going to say, how often the Diaz brothers make it to, like, Macy's to check out the price of, like, a KitchenAid mixer, which is, you know, something that they would have on the prices, right? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I assume that the Diaz brothers are going to a weird health food store, whatever one is bikeable from their – the crash pad where I imagine they both live together, uh, and just, like, getting kale chips and – uh you know, artichoke hearts. Is that a, that's a thing, right? But then, you know, maybe they get lucky. They get on there, and one of the items that they're asked to name a price for is like a set of nunchucks. And they just kind of look at each other like, bro, we got this. Yeah. A lid of grass. <laughs> a lid of grass. Yeah, way to go, narc. They would nail that one. Uh, well, okay, to answer the question. The page Van Zandt, first of all, what about the Paige Van Zant on, on Dancing with the Stars thing? Because my first reaction when I heard that was, are we sure she's enough of a star? But I guess she is. Um, I, I saw some people make some valid points about the number of people that watch Dancing with the Stars and how that will probably be good for Paige Van Zant to go on there and how she might emerge a much bigger star than before. I suppose all of that is true. Uh, I don't a give dancer, a fuck. Right? right? Yeah, she actually was a dancer, which uh, you'll find that people who were dancers often do really well on Dancing with the Stars. Like, I'll take your word uh, for it. I'm pretty sure that... Uh, Former WWE superstar, whose name eludes me at the time, went on there, female superstar, who had previously been like a professional dancer, and she made it all the way to the finals. Uh, didn't like Christy Yamaguchi, former figure skater, I think did well on Dancing with the Stars. I've never seen an episode of Dancing with the Stars. So me either, man. I'm just, I'm telling you what I heard. If anything, around the way. I mean, I heard some people saying, like, basically, oh, you know, shouldn't Paige Van Zant be, uh, trying to become a better fighter. She kind of got exposed in that Rose Namajunas fight. Uh, isn't this kind of just a distraction from that? To which, I don't know, it's not like this whole thing lasts very long. She's 21. I think she's got plenty of time still. What it told me, though, is that uh, maybe this is the first of many signs to come that Paige Van Zant and her people have their eye on a career outside of getting punched in the face and that maybe she's one of these fighters who is not hoping to stick around here for too long. That would not surprise Yeah, more power to her if that's the case, frankly. Uh, Let's answer the real question here. What mixed martial arts celebrity would you like to see on a reality television show? Because I'll go ahead and take Tank Abbott on anything, right? Real world, road (laughs) rules. What if the real world cast was like, you know, nine 21-year-olds and Tank Abbott living together in in an apartment in San Francisco? Okay. I'd watch that. Hashtag would watch. Yeah. A lot of just uncomfortable house meetings where they they start off the agenda as if they're going to talk about like some things that you know maybe everybody needs to be aware of, and then six minutes in, it becomes clear we called this meeting again to talk about Tank's behavior. Yeah, we'll go ahead and talk about Dave's dirty dishes now. Dave, you really need to clean your dishes. Also, Tank, you broke a window last night, <laughs> and there's still shards of glass in the carpet. Uh, that's kind of a problem for you us. You know he would be sitting in that meeting drinking a siren, loving every minute of that's it, right. just laughing his ass that's off. That's right, he would. Uh, how about, it uh, seems like George St. Pierre would just fit in really well as The Bachelor. Would he yes. not? Yeah. George St. Pierre you could insert on into almost any reality television show. Until he refuses to send 
any women home and it's just a bunch of them in a hot tub at the end of episode one. You're like, well, I guess, I guess that's kind of it. For all we know, you could stick George St. Pierre on Project Runway and he could come up with some charming lookbooks. <laughs> I don't even know what you're saying right now. Next question this week comes from Jared Fortier, or Jared Fortier, as we would say here in Montana. He writes, so Justin Gaethje just rolled through another World Series of Fighting main event. Though it's hard to tell given his opponents, he looks like he could be a top 10 guy in the UFC. What's the benefit of a guy like that, or Ben Askren, or a pre-UFC Eddie Alvarez staying out of the UFC? Are they building a following, getting good sponsorships, or making good paydays by being the best in a lower level instead of being a guy in the somewhere? what no man's land of the bottom half of the UFC's lightweight top 10 gentlemen please discourse uh so Justin Gaethje just said I believe today might have been even at the MMAjunkie.com that I saw the headline that he is going to fight out his remaining two fights and then quote unquote see what he's worth right. uh, so he apparently seems intent on testing the free agent market and I'm going to come out and say Justin Gaethje's tenure in the world series of fighting has been more advantageous to him than perhaps any other fighter who has made a name for himself as like a long-standing member of a smaller organization uh, before he comes to the UFC. Like clearly, Eddie Alvarez was a guy who we thought was a top fighter in the world for a really long time, but he also suffered some losses uh, before he showed up in the UFC. And Ben Askren, well, we're still we're still waiting yeah, for him to show he's up still out there in the UFC. But Gaethje is basically at this point the World Series of Fighting, right? Like among the marketable commodities controlled by the WSOF, it's kind of Gaethje and nobody at this point. Um, and so I think that that's good for him. And I think that if you're World Series of Fighting and Justin Gaethje is about to test his his worth on the free agent market, it would be worth your while to pony up whatever dough you could to try to keep him, Yeah. right? Well, but he's also done a really good job making himself into a marketable commodity because when you think Justin Gaethje, you know, regardless of how this plays out, I guess for his own personal future, like you think hashtag would watch when yeah. you think Justin Gaethje. And from the UFC's perspective, uh, even though the company itself doesn't typically like to really open the wallet, for what you might consider unproven free agents or new guys, for lack of a better term, uh, I would think Justin Gaethje should command some dough. Well, yeah, and as we've learned, uh, we've talked before about some of the worst ways to get into the UFC, uh, the Ultimate Fighter being one of them, as far as like financially and what kind of contract you're going to come in on. And it does seem like if you can manage to be one of those few people who can make a few waves outside the UFC and it seems like your career trajectory is kind of headed there anyway... Uh, then that's how you can get a, a pretty good upfront fee uh, coming right into the UFC. And especially if you happen to be one of these guys who, like you said, his style is one where it's just kind of coming straight at you and a, let's say, uh, liberal attitude toward defending his own face at yes. times. laissez-faire. Well, but that's, see, that's one of the things that makes me wonder. Like right now, he's what, like 16-0. He's got two more fights, I think, World Series of Fighting. Uh and when you watch him fight, I'm, I always have the, the devil and the angel on my shoulder saying, man, this guy is exciting to watch, and how long can he do this? Right. Like we've seen with other guys uh, before, you know, that kind of takes a, a drop off in quality. Right. I, I don't know. I, I kind of wonder that same thing with him, and a part of me just feels like, oh, man, hurry up and get paid. Right. Well, and Gaethje is also one of those guys like 
uh, Jared mentions in this in this email, it's hard to tell because he's been fighting lower level opponents. Like if Justin Gaethje showed up in the UFC and got I don't know smoked by Maximo Blanco or somebody like that, you wouldn't be that surprised, right? You, I mean, he I, I like Justin Gaethje as much as the next guy, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't bet the house on his ability to be a top ten guy in the UFC, as it says in this. In this email. I don't know. I, I would feel pretty comfortable putting him in the as a top ten guy in the UFC. Maybe not the top half of the top ten, but yeah, I think he deserves to be. He, he could go in there and be a top ten guy. Uh, but you know, as far as what kind of you know, if you're a World Series of Fighting, whether you're going to shell out the money to retain the services of one Justin Gaethje, I mean, don't you at some point for them get to the point where you don't really have anybody left for him to fight? That maybe you've, you've done all you can. Uh, with Justin Gaethje, and you're going to be paying more than it's actually worth to you in your circumstance to keep him. Yeah, probably so. But I mean, like I said, man, it would it's a it's a pretty bleak scenario for the series of fighting if Justin Gaethje departs. Well, uh, okay. do you want? Do you it's want probably to, a pretty bleak for scenario. Sure, yeah, for do you want to read the uh, related question from David Golden, which is right above this one? Um, if I can find it, then I will read it. Do you want me one. to just read it? You just I'm read looking it. at it. From David Golden. I was watching World Series of Fighting this weekend, and as expected, I was completely underwhelmed. I appreciate the fact they brought in Chael Sonnen as a commentator, but that's such a small saving grace. It genuinely feels like they're fading away. So here's my thought. Tell me what you think. Assuming Bellator doesn't always want to be the shit show that they have become, why not flex a muscle, drop a little Viacom coin, and buy up World Series of Fighting? They would immediately gain a significant amount of talented fighters. Jake Shields, John Fitch, Yushin Okami, Justin Gaethje, Dave Branch, and Marlon Moraes. Uh, just to name a few, I believe this would lend some needed credibility to Bellator, and as an added bonus, would likely piss Dana White off a tiny bit. What do you guys think? So this email mentions a bunch of dudes who are in World Series of Fighting uh, that I did not mention when I said it seemed like it's Justin Gaethje and nobody else. But I would also say, for whatever reason, it feels like a Bellator MMA could make better use of guys like Jake Shields, John Fitch, and Yushin Okami than World Series of Fighting has done. Like, you forget that Shields and Fitch and Okami are even over there at World Series of Fighting, whereas if Bellator had them, they'd probably put together some fun fights. Yeah, it's true that World Series of Fighting, I think, is in danger of falling into that position where you, we're already straining ourselves as the MMA world as a whole to to start caring more about Bellator, um, even if we're starting to care more about the weird shit going on in Bellator. And then you ask us to remember World Series of Fighting, which may or may not take place in a rec center where people are practicing volleyball or some shit. Um, that may be a little bit too much of a stretch. And you're right that it seems like we only remember those guys when they have a fight coming up like this weekend. You know, Then it's kind of like, oh, yeah, oh, that's right. Of course, those guys are over there. Um, so, I mean... If, if what is what you're saying that it would be better for us if maybe World Series of Fighting took a nosedive and then we could all just we, then there would be a clear number one and a clear number two. This, and, yeah, uh, I mean, despite the fact that I'm loath to advocate for fighters having fewer employment uh, opportunities, it would probably be better for fans, right? If Scott Coker could. Uh, roll into to the World Series of Fighting office with the Viacom black card and slap it down on the counter and just say we're putting this one on credit. Uh, <laughs> now, I think that the the real the real question here though is is as it always has been with Bellator and Viacom, and that's what's the ability of Bellator to convince Viacom to open up the pocketbooks. 
Uh, you know, we see them picking up these free agents, but it's not like Bellator has made a significant play for a real top UFC star, I guess maybe uh, with the exception of Ben Henderson, who is the former champion. Uh, but, like, we haven't seen them make a run at, like, John Jones. We haven't seen them make a run at, like, hiring the best lawyers they possibly could to try to get George St. Pierre out of his contract. Uh, you know, so the I think the, the probably the answer to this question is I think it would be awesome, but in a real-world scenario, what's Bellator's uh, ability to, to convince Viacom to, like, to break out the big face money? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I'd love to hear some more ideas for what could happen with that Bella, that Viacom black card. Now that you mention it, it's, 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 it's just a fun well, flight of fancy. To I go mean, on. how do you think they paid for that 81 vet that Ken Shamrock was smoking PCP <laughs> behind the bumper? Well, in retrospect, maybe, maybe if you don't have that 81 vet tempting a guy like Ken Shamrock, maybe this all works out way differently. Maybe Scott Coker uh, shows up in Ray Sefo's office and is like, how about I just trade you the 81 vet for world series of fighting? <laughs> Straight up, yeah, just a straight up, just a straight up trade. Or maybe you get them into some kind of racing for pink slip scenario. I don't know exactly what that means, but like, means Um, okay. Let's. How about we got some of these Nate Diaz, Conor McGregor questions here? Yes, let's let's please do. Um, From David Latorret or Latore, whatever. Uh, So I recently watched the documentary Broke about professional athletes who are now penniless despite making millions of dollars throughout their respective playing careers. This got me thinking about Conor McGregor. The dude seems to live pretty lavishly and very rarely talks about his portfolio diversification. He seems like a good candidate for someone who, looking back, blew through too much money. How many minutes after Conor McGregor announces his retirement do you think it will take before he's back to plumbing? Now, I admit I have wondered about this on occasion because when he's out there... In his jean shorts, uh, showing off his Bentley, you do wonder if maybe Conor McGregor is is not spending the money a little too quickly. It's always hard to know with MMA fighters exactly where the money, how much money is coming in, and how much is going out, and where it's going, and everything. But he has talked in the past about like an almost pathological quest to spend as much money as he can so that he stays hungry to keep making a whole bunch of money. Uh, and as you and I were also talking about during our scotch tasting with talk that he's going to come right back and fight at UFC 200, it's not that hard to imagine a scenario where suddenly Conor McGregor catches a couple quick losses and maybe he does not look so much like the Golden Goose anymore. I think he can still, he, he can lose a few fights and he's still a value to the UFC just because of his personality and, and people know him. You know, we As we've seen with how some of those guys are doing in Bellator way past their expiration dates, the fact that people know you at all and care about what you're doing is a huge asset to have in MMA, and it, it doesn't go away that easily. Um, but it does make you wonder, especially when you've seen other previous fighters. I mean, do we? it feels like maybe we don't worry about it with Conor McGregor because we're like, hey, here's one of the few guys who is actually being paid well. He'll be fine. Um, do you think that maybe uh, we, we make the wrong assumptions there when it comes to some of these guys? pocketbooks yeah it's possible we underestimate his ability to just blow through monster amounts of cash right which it seems like he he is dead set on doing i mean i think on the flip side of the coin conor mcgregor seems smart and he particularly seems you know maybe to have the best inherent understanding of the business side of the fight game of any mixed martial artist that we've seen or at least publicly that we've known about uh so you'd like to think that uh that he has a diversified portfolio, that he's out here 
uh, paying on his IRA and and getting into some mutual funds and whatnot. Uh, but it wouldn't surprise you if the opposite of that is true. And like you said, uh, we have started to wonder in the wake of this loss to Nate Diaz whether or not it's going to be a short window for Conor McGregor. And, uh, you know, somebody told us once people start to get a little money and they think that the money is just going to keep coming forever. And it does seem tempting to say that's kind of how Conor McGregor is behaving. On the other side of that, I guess, as you said, I don't think you can really ever underestimate the ability of a guy who talks as well as Conor McGregor to extend his career if he wants to. Uh, God knows Chael Sonnen talked his way into several fights that he, you know, based on pure merit, probably did not deserve. Uh, So as long as Conor McGregor doesn't get exposed as a pure fraud, which I don't know that that's going to happen, like the guy appears to be a good fighter, uh, it seems like he will be able to... uh, you know, extend his career in terms of marketability. And, you know, maybe at some point, like I heard Kobe Bryant say once, once he got into his thirties, he was going to stop eating at McDonald's. Uh, maybe Conor <laughs> McGregor realizes maybe I only got a half dozen fights left. Maybe I don't take the purse from this fight and buy a Bentley. Right. Yeah. Well, I think more likely the scenario that we see with fighters isn't so much that you retire and you go back to your job as a plumber. The more likely scenario is you don't retire you keep fighting long after you really should, long after you really super want to, uh, just because you need to keep getting in there and, and making those quick paychecks. And then those paychecks get smaller and smaller and smaller. Again, I don't know if that'll, that'll really be him. I think that he is uh, in one of the rare scenarios to actually really profit from this and get out if he wants to. It's just always one. I think one of the things we never understand when we see the kind of big money that pro athletes at the top like like conor mcgregor can make is the rest of us just kind of think like there's no way you could possibly go broke on that that amount of money and that documentary the 30 for 30 broke which by the way was made by the dude who made the uh backyard brawling oh, dog, dog fight. fight really same that, guy yeah Interesting. same guy billy corbin um he made that one and he also made uh the you that, that 30 for 30 oh. um but that one is good to watch because you can you see how from a lot of them talking how their perspectives on what money is worth gets so warped uh, by even just being in that world. Like there's that great story. One of the NFL players talks about where he he got like an injury settlement um, when he his career was ended from an injury and he was already kind of broke at that point And they gave him like, you know, the injury settlement was like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars or something like that. And. He was like, I was driving home and I was just passing by the car dealership and the new Hummer had just come out. And he goes in there and basically spends his whole check uh, just to get one car. Well, now we're all depressed. Yes. Next question from Zach Redmond. He writes, team, I find it interesting that more isn't being made of the possible impact that not cutting weight might have had on the chin of the biggish homie Nate Diaz. Joe Rogan and Jeff Nowitzki discussed at length on his podcast, the effect weight cutting close to the fight has on the brain and a fighter's ability to absorb damage. With Connor landing a bunch of the left hands, we've seen sleep dehydrated opponents. Uh, we've seen, with Connor landing a bunch of the left hands, we've seen sleep dehydrated opponents. Sleep being used as yes, a verb there. Yes, we've seen sleep dehydrated opponents, not sleep dehydrated or sleep right. deprived. Uh, shouldn't this be a more prominent topic of conversation? Uh, yeah, maybe. I've seen this sentiment a little bit after the fight that, like, 
in some way this fight would stand as a testament against weight cutting and that maybe, you know, it would start a trend. Guys wouldn't want to cut as much weight as they had before. And I guess that depends on whose side you want to take here because uh, maybe Nate Diaz not cutting any weight did allow him to absorb those early power punches from Conor McGregor, as Zach Redmond alleges. Uh, Nate Diaz also has a pretty good chin, so yeah, I we, think that we should not discount that. But if you will come down on the Conor McGregor side of this equation, and clearly the way the UFC is choosing to frame this loss in the aftermath, especially with the mainstream media, uh, this fight... Seems to me the lesson of it is, motherfucker, cut as much weight as you can. Like, you don't want to walk in here at your normal weight and fight a guy who's a little bit bigger than you. You want to cut as much weight as you can so you can keep knocking out the Jose Aldos of the world. Yeah, you could definitely read it that way because it does seem like if you, one of the problems there was fighting the bigger dude who didn't really mind that much getting hit. Like, you're right, though, that it's not like we've seen Nate Diaz in situations where when he had to cut weight, his chin went to shit. Um, that never really seems to be too much of an issue for those guys. Uh, but it, it seemed more that what happened to Conor McGregor was he got tired, that he thought he was just going to go out there and knock the dude out in the first round, right. land in those left hands, and then that didn't happen, and he didn't have enough in the tank. Right, and, and on the, I mean, on the, on the weight side of things, you could say that that, that very thing was the biggest factor, that Conor McGregor, uh, having taken the last few months to bulk up, thinking he was going to fight Rafael Dos Anjos for the 155-pound title, maybe didn't realize how carrying that extra bulk would affect his cardio, if, if that's what happened. This would also be one of the few times in actual UFC history when a dude carrying extra muscle mass appeared to affect his cardio, and the UFC announcers didn't even talk about it, <laughs> when normally that's like their favorite thing. Yeah. Okay, here's a semi-related question from Jason Schelt. Is Ido Portal's movement coaching effective or only when Conor McGregor's cardio doesn't shit the bed? Conor's head movement became so predictable, he became a wrestler, and even Dennis Seaver wants a rematch. Will Ido Portal collect his 15 minutes of fame, man bun up, and drive off into the sunset in his VW van full of pool noodles and spandex? Jason Shelp. A fine email on uh, this week's podcast. We mentioned it on the, the Breakfast of Champions a couple weeks ago. But we do seem to be getting a little bit of a Sensei Steven Seagal vibe from Ido Portal, do we not? Yeah, I, man, it's hard to know. Like, Conor McGregor legitimately does look good. Like, he looks very athletic. He looks... Uh, I, his movement is dope, frankly. Like, <laughs> if he is spending a lot of time with this movement coach, it seems to be paying off. Like, uh, he moves very well out there. He's, he's smooth and supple. He's out there throwing those spin, okay. spinning kicks. They're not hitting anything, but he looks good doing it. Uh, and who knows how much of that comes from Ido Portal and how much of it is just Conor McGregor's genetics. Uh, yeah, no, I know what you're saying. And I have gone through that same back and forth on it, too, because, you know, his movement, his control of distance and range is one of the greatest things Conor McGregor has going for him in his fight game. Uh, and at the same time, then when I remember, like, oh, yeah, he kind of considers the guiding philosophy in his life that he watched the DVD of The Secret. Like, maybe this guy might be a little susceptible um, to bullshit viewpoints that seem to work for him because he's got a lot of other stuff working for him. Uh, and just because of what we've seen in the past, that it seems like sometimes fighters uh, are a little bit susceptible to that kind of an, that kind of an outside influence from somebody like that. Um, I do think it's good to see fighters 
or at least a fighter embracing some sort of training that is not just let's keep bashing each other's skulls in and in this way we'll get better. Right. It's something that might contribute to a little more career longevity. Um, at the same time, I don't know. I don't know, but I guess maybe I'd like to see the, the stuff work for some of Conor McGregor's teammates uh, who do not seem to be enjoying runaway success thanks to their their work, their movement coaching. Yeah, um, and I agree with you. I think that like one of the kind of cool things about Conor McGregor is him embracing a different uh, approach. The when you know he, he uh, after his last fight, he was on that uh, Fox Sports one. I think it was a post fight show, like talking about how he's way more into like stretching and uh, movement and like elongating the spine than he is like waking up and immediately going to lift a bunch of weights because he feels like that makes him. Uh, uh, you know, more athletic, better. He increases his movement, increases his flexibility. And I think like embracing all of that stuff is cool. However, from a devil's advocate perspective here, are we maybe giving, cutting Conor McGregor a break on this? Because if this was somebody else playing touch butt in the park, if this was somebody else, quote unquote, playing touch butt in the park, thanks Nate Diaz for that one. Uh, Let's say if this was a Brazilian guy, Brazilian fighter who was doing this. He's out there with the pool noodles. And then he goes out there and gasses out against Nate Diaz. Would there be more questions lobbed in his direction about his preparations? Because, you know, it's been a long time since we've seen Conor McGregor in a long fight. Uh, Jose Aldo, 13 seconds. Chad Mendes, second round TKO. Dennis Seaver, second round TKO. Dustin Poirier, first round knockout. Uh... Would it surprise you to learn that Conor McGregor is doing too much touch butt in the park and not enough treadmill? <laughs> and are we cutting him too much slack and not raising those questions? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that he gets cut some slack because he's earned a little slack. As far, because he, we doubted him for so long. And, you know, we like you said on the last week's podcast, I think... He won all the fights you thought he was going to lose, and then he goes out there and loses the one you think he's going to win. Uh, so I think he did kind of get to this point when everybody kind of had to step back and say, okay, you knocked out Jose Aldo in 13 seconds. This dude is obviously legit. Um, and we hadn't really seen him look tired in a fight. Um, so it's not like it became an issue before that. You're right, though, that if it, if maybe somebody else had done it, um, then, well, yeah, right. Like Jose Aldo gasses out in one fight, right? He looks super tired against Mark Hominick, and all of a sudden the rest of his career, we're like, oh, Jose, you just got to get him in the later rounds. Like he yeah. just doesn't prepare. He cuts too much weight, doesn't do enough cardio, blah, 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 blah. I just wonder that, you know, if it was someone that that the industry at large was not willing to extend as much political capital to as they are Conor McGregor, like would we be asking tougher questions? Yeah. Would we be less impressed with how flowy they had kept it? How about this one from Alexander in PA? He writes, Edgar or Aldo? Who should it be and who will it be? How much say will McGregor and his fans have in this decision? You know, I would rather see Frankie Edgar. I agree with you. Uh, But I think signs point to that it might be Aldo. It does seem to be headed that way. And I get it. I, I understand how, especially after... After that 13-second knockout, just the way it kind of unfolded, and then when you go out there and see Conor McGregor get exposed a little bit against Nate Diaz and you're reminded of some of the weaknesses in his game, uh, I can see why a lot of fans might 
change their minds kind of retroactively and be like, wait a minute, that was just a fluke. He got lucky. He landed one good punch on Jose Aldo and Aldo fell down. Um, and you know, let's, let's run it back and find out what would really happen. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe I just feel like I'm still tired from the Aldo McGregor build up the first time. And then the second time when they had to reboot it and go after it and do it again. Um, but I just feel like I need a little more space with that one. Plus, the way Frankie Edgar's been looking, if you want to find out how much of Conor McGregor's problem was the fighting a bigger guy in Nate Diaz or carrying around too much bulk or fighting the guy with a great chin um, and how much of it was just that he had some holes in his game, put him in there against Frankie Edgar because that guy will really find out. And Frankie Edgar uh, is... Quick guy, fast guy, but not a huge guy, even at 145. Um, but he does have good wrestling, can get you down, and has good ground skills once he gets you there. I think that would be a really interesting test, especially right now for Conor McGregor. Yeah, I think they're both interesting tests. And I think that, dare I say, they're both kind of tough matchups for Conor McGregor, frankly. We all thought that the Jose Aldo fight was going to be a tough matchup for him. We, you know, this had a, that fight came along, uh, during the time when I think, a lot of us, maybe including myself, still had questions about Conor McGregor. And every single matchup, we were like, aha, aha, this is the one. This is the one where we'll find out, like, what he's made of. And then the 13-second knockout, obviously, was the most impressive way you could possibly win that fight. But because it was so short, we didn't really get to see how those guys matched up. Uh, and that kind of victory, as we've said before in the past, has a way of uh, masking maybe some of the uh, the winning fighters' deficiencies. And I think it'd be real interesting to see what would happen if those guys went out and fought longer for 13 seconds. And then, like you said, Frankie Edgar, just stylistically, uh, is a difficult matchup. Uh, I will say for Frankie Edgar, one of the things that I would find most interesting about it is that Frankie Edgar is not afraid to get punched in the face. Like, he gets punched in the face by his opponents, and we've seen him get punched in the face as the lightweight champion and get super rocked uh, and be able to sort of battle his way back and, and either win the fight uh, or force a draw or whatever happened in the... I think it was I think it was he won against Gray Maynard, right, when he almost got knocked out in the first round? Or second round, whatever it was, I don't remember. It was a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> something happened. Yes. Something definitely something, something did occurred. Uh, I distinctly remember something happening. So I think it's likely that Conor McGregor would be able to punch Frankie Edgar, and I think it would be super interesting to see how Frankie Edgar weathered that power at 145 pounds. Uh, and if he didn't get knocked out, then obviously his uh, his stick and move style and his super fast takedowns could cause huge problems. I think for Conor McGregor. So both interesting matchups. I lean with you. I would like to see Frankie Edgar, uh, but the Magic 8-Ball, and I think marketability-wise, this might be the, the right choice just to see how much money you can make. If they do it at UFC 200, uh, McGregor-Aldo rematch would probably be kind of a no-brainer. I don't know, but I feel like, uh, and we'll get into this in the next question or about UFC 200, you're already going to have some big fights probably on that one. We think. We don't know if at you, this point. If you have Conor McGregor against anybody... Then you are already guaranteed, you know, a certain level of attention and, and, and pay-per-view buys. I don't know if it really make a, a huge difference, whether it's Frankie Edgar or Jose Aldo. And I think that if it's Frankie Edgar, that gives you more future opportunities because say you, you do McGregor and Edgar. If McGregor knocks out Frankie Edgar, or retains the title, then you go ahead and you turn around and you do the Jose Aldo rematch and you sell a bunch of pay-per-views at that one. Uh, if Frankie Edgar wins the title, well, now you you got a little more movement at 145 pounds. Now, if he rematches Jose Aldo, 
you know, the, the belts on the other waist. You got a little more uh, of an interesting narrative going into that, or do you turn around and give Conor McGregor an immediate rematch? But if you just do McGregor-Aldo and, you know, say Aldo comes out there and wins it, then you're kind of right back where you were, where, where Aldo has still basically cleaned out the featherweight division. Uh, and either you're just going to have those guys keep fighting each other and over and over again, or you're going to go right back to Aldo versus Edgar for a fight that will see a massive drop-off in pay-per-view buys compared to whatever McGregor's doing as champion. So I think that there's some options there. However, on the note of UFC 200, and this seems like is has become a favorite question of MMA fans everywhere. We are obsessed with what will what in God's name will happen at UFC 200. Yeah, so the the blanket answer is... We don't know. Uh, nobody knows yet because even the UFC could tell you here's what's going to happen. And man, we've seen how this shit goes, right? It's like people think that because it's UFC 200 and it's special that the gods will somehow respect that. <laughs> and they'll leave this one alone. Um, whereas there's definitely no guarantee that it's going to happen. However, we have several questions that threw together some interesting possibilities. Also from Alexander and PA um, who wonders... Uh, you know, Rafael Dos Anjos says, Hid fight Lawler at UFC 200. Sounds like McGregor will be fighting Edgar or Aldo. Will we see the return of GSP? Will Nate Diaz stocked and slap some son of a bitch? Will Lawler go full Lawler and take someone's head off? Um, and also from Daniel Owen puts together, you know, some possibilities such as Tate Rousey or Holm Rousey and Tate Noons. Uh, Bisping Silva, Bisping Diaz, meaning Nick. Uh, McGregor Diaz, meaning Nate. McGregor Aldo. I'm confused now. I'm just, I'm confused. I'm, my head's spinning. All right. So let's say we're really going out all out for UFC 200. Um, first of all, do you, do you think Tate Rousey is a given at this point? Or do you think UFC 200 is still too soon? Even if she, even if Ronda Rousey got back to work when she heard it was Misha Tate who had the belt and no longer Holly Holm? I think if it is all at all physically possible for Ronda Rousey to be there, she will be there because, uh, you, you, it wouldn't, you know, like we say, UFC 200, this is supposed to be the one that we, we shoot fireworks off for, breaks every record in the book. It's hard to imagine them having an event of that magnitude without Ronda Rousey there. And it sure seemed like they were going to do Rousey versus Misha Tate. So I think, you know, if Rousey can get herself in shape and, and be ready to go, uh, you got to believe she'll be there. And I still think that's the best news Misha Tate could possibly get. Right. Is that she's that, hurrying back. Yes. Um, is that Ronda Rousey would feel like, okay, easy pickings time. Let me just, let me jump off this movie set real quick, hit a couple pads. I'm ready to go. Let's go fight Misha Tate. Whereas Misha Tate sees this as like the culmination of her life's work. Right. Um, Curious also, didn't you think that your boy George St. Pierre was in the house at UFC 196? We haven't seen a ton of him uh, playing footsie with the UFC. We haven't seen a ton of him in attendance during his, uh, you know, uh, extended sabbatical, his his hiatus from the sport. Uh, so naturally, just having him be there is was raised some eyebrows and obviously got the rumor mill going uh donald cerrone advantageous call out of george st pierre mm-hmm. uh also check out the balls on Rafael dos anjos huh <laughs> this guy's gonna pull out with his broken foot a week before ufc 196 and then he's gonna come around and be like hey you know what i would fight that robbie lawler why not hey how about you guys give me that super fight instead i'll hobble in there with my broke ass foot it'll be okay yeah 
Yo, yeah. Silva, text him back. Let me get back to you on that. <laughs> uh, I do wonder exactly how big of a load up we'll see as far as all the big names and the big champions on one fight card. Um, because that's all, that's all fun stuff to do, but then, you know, you're going to have to turn around and, and put together some fights the next month and right. the month after that. Yeah. The credits don't roll after that. The story just keeps it going. Yeah. We don't, we don't get to freeze so frame it. In that same vein, you'd think that if you could make some fun style matchups, like bring in St. Pierre back to fight Robbie Lawler or bring in St. Pierre back to finally make good on the Anderson Silva super fight that we never saw. Uh, back in the day that you would want to do that because that gives you essentially a free fight that doesn't use up one of your champions that you could still, you know. Right. I would think also, though, that somebody has to fight at UFC 201. Right. Unfortunately <laughs> for them. Right. Uh, I think that George St. Pierre, you know, he's one of the smarter fighters business wise. And, you know, he's been paying attention to all all the talk that's been going on. After Conor McGregor has showed up and talked about Breeze and passed the $10 million mark, if George St. Pierre is going to come back uh, and fight at UFC 200, you know he's going to want to want to sit down again at the negotiating table and talk over money. Especially yes, yes. coming back in the post-Reebok era. I don't know if George St. Pierre is going to want to be like, all right, hey, what did we agree to last time for my last fight? That's fine. Just give me that. Let's just go ahead and just give me whatever I got last time. I, I don't even remember, to be honest. I don't even remember what you paid me. I'll just trust you guys. You guys will make it right, uh, and I'll just show up and fight. I don't think so. I think that George St. Pierre uh, would be demanding some serious cash at this point to come yeah, back. Yeah, and I would think, you mentioned the Reebok era, I would think in the post-Conor McGregor era, where dudes, where he, where dude, I guess, singular dude, is earning a million-dollar disclosed payout and, and talked big about how he was going to blow past $10 million, you would, like, George say, if you were George St. Pierre, you could totally justify looking at that and thinking, they are paying who? What? <laughs> and having George St. Pierre roll up and be like, do you guys remember when I fought Jake Shields at UFC 129 and we sold 800,000 pay-per-views? Me against like 60,000 people Jake showed up to watch Shields? Yeah. Yes, I do remember that, by the way. Got poked in his damn eye, too, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, let's see here. Where are we? Now I'm... I don't know. You're, I've you had have, too you're much fun. I've had too much fun. Oh, I know what I wanted to do. Co-main event podcast uh, question from Rich Macaloni. He writes, So it appears that there will be no book club episode for Hellbound Heaven Sent. Oh, here we go. Still can't believe I read that so I could be ready for the original scheduled book club date. Do you think you could discuss your thoughts briefly during listener mail or in an upcoming episode? This is not my genre, but I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts of professional writers about this style of writing. I found it created a quite vivid images, but went too fast through what should have been epic battle scenes. Thank guys. Thank Thanks, guys. Uh... Rich Macaloni, stop spreading these heinous lies in the streets. I'm prepared to say here on episode 196 of the Co-Main Event Podcast that we will do a goddamn book club episode about Hellbound Heaven Sent, formerly known as To Light Us, To Guard Us, by UFC fighter Sean O'Connell. We will do it. We just don't know when. Have you read it? No, I haven't read it. I haven't read anything for like two years because I'm working on this goddamn second novel yeah. that I have to turn in. Uh, how's that going, by the way? It's still going. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
But we're going to do it. Okay. As soon as, do you, do you as, soon as name Chad a... Dundas has some time to read for pleasure, I got, I have Hellbound Heaven Sent on my Kindle. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to do it. Have you read it? Have you read the whole I've thing? read some of it. So you're over here throwing stones from your glass house. I'm willing to bet I've read more of it. Than well, that have. is not a worthwhile thing to compare. If you haven't read the whole thing, you, you've got no business casting stones. Do you... We're going to do it. Okay. That's the bottom line. All right. We are doing a book club episode about Hellbound Heaven Sent. Or maybe the actual apocalypse will come before we have to do that. Um, we should be so lucky. Here's one that there's not a name attached to it, but it says, With the MMA industry growing and becoming more mainstream, what changes have you noticed to the way the sport as a whole is covered by journalists? How much more lucrative is it now to cover the sport than it was in ye old times? That bloke from the MMA Fortnite set seems to have gotten fancier in recent years. This is an interesting question. I don't know about as far as um, if it's gotten more lucrative. Certainly I think that there are more... Um, Decent paying jobs to be found. Like, there's just more outlets, uh, from bigger media companies that have the money to pay, like, an actual living wage to people rather than just some, somebody saying they'll give you 50 bucks to write a blog on something, um, which is a little more typical of ye old times. Uh, there's more of that just because when people notice the popularity of MMA, then they think, like, all right, we do all these other sports. We got to have an MMA presence on the internet. Um, and it pays off for those companies. I think that you can make good money uh, if you know what you're doing there. As far as one of the changes that I've noticed to the way the sport is covered by journalists, it seems to me, and you tell me if you think I'm wrong about this, it seems to me that we have seen a a rise in the we'll all just watch the same TV shows or listen to the same podcasts and write the same basic stories off of them. So you see it, everybody. Every website does these kind of stories now. Um, where it seems like maybe, I'm, and maybe I'm imagining it, that in ye old times, there used to be a little bit more people trying to pursue their own stories rather than we're all just going to grab the same headlines. And you, you almost get forced into it if you run like a, one of the major websites where you kind of can't ha not have this headline of Joe Rogan saying this inflammatory thing. You know, you, it, it becomes news to a point where it's almost like it takes an act of will to ignore some of this stuff or like Rousey gets, caught up by TMZ at an airport or something and you kind of you're forced into doing something on that because you can't just let that one go right. and then it, pretty soon you're almost doing nothing but that yeah I, I agree with you and then that is I don't want to say no if I want to say troubling but it's not my favorite thing in the world uh, and then, you know I think in in some ways the the way that the UFC schedule has ballooned in the past half half dozen years or so has kind of uh created that environment or forced that to be sure. a more prevalent thing because you know back when the UFC is only doing 15 or 20 events a year you would have to do more enterprise right you'd have to be out here almost uh, just as for self preservation you'd have to be out there brainstorming more uh feature ideas and different ideas and, and unique ideas that you could chase down and do stories. So you had stuff to publish in between events. Now it's sort of like we're stuck in this never ending cycle of like pre-fight events, uh, press conference, weigh in, open workouts, event, next day stories about the event, following week starts up again and you're just doing, you know, press conference, weigh ins, open workouts again. So, uh, the schedule has become relentless in a way 
that I think it's kind of easy to fall into that cycle. Uh, and, um, I kind of wish that, that there was more. And I mean, a lot of people are doing awesome stuff. Let's not make it seem like everyone's just sort of recycling the same stories. You know, there are lots of people doing great MMA writing out there. Uh, I saw Luke Thomas last week on his chat that he did kind of lamented about this and I hadn't thought a ton about it, but I think that he's right that even as far as the sport has come, at times it's disappointing to see the bigger outlets like ESPN or somebody like that uh, take the best stories in MMA and assign their general assignment feature writers to do the stories instead of trusting people uh, like uh, Brad Okamoto being the, the example for ESPN since he's the, the longtime ESPN MMA writer over there. Uh, like, you know, letting Brad Okamoto or Chuck Mindenhall when he was there or Chad Dundas when he was there. I was referred to myself in the third person like three times on this show. Wow. I'm just, it's, it's like a new record it's for my you. My new thing. Yeah. I start doing it all the time, just being insufferable. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it yeah, can be. Being insufferable be a new thing. It can be, uh, uh, sometimes disappointing to see those like mainstream writers snatch up the, the big feature stories, uh, because I think you can argue oftentimes the execution is not what it would have been if they just would have trusted the people who have been covering the beat for a long time. Yeah. And no, and you do see that kind of thing all the time. And that is especially true. I, I've, I've noticed that ESPN does it and you'll see them every once in a while. I've been at events where like the person from ESPN who showed up to do like the kind of the on camera work would end up asking like a question or something in the scrum and you're just like, you don't do this, do you? And I, maybe it's harder for some of those mainstream media outlets to understand because, hey, man, if you cover football and baseball and basketball, you, your guy should be able to co- show up to a hockey game and right. and get through it. Uh, maybe they just don't really get what a weird sport this is. And yeah, and they, they, they don't a lot of times is. understand the passion of the fan base, which is – can be startling at times. <laughs> but, you know, once again, like today, I was listening to the Dan Lebitard show on ESPN Radio, which is actually one of their better shows, and I really like it. It's a it's a smart show, and they lampoon a lot of, like, sports radio cliches. But they were talking about Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz again today, and they once again made reference to Nate Diaz outweighing Conor McGregor by, quote-unquote, 25 pounds. And I was just, you know, I hang my head when that stuff happens because it's, it's once again the situation where – these mainstream sports shows want to do that coverage and they want to to talk about those things and, and give MMA the exposure, which is great, but they don't know enough about it to make sure that they've got it all right. And that's just like one example of stuff that frequently happens when those people that don't cover the sport regularly come in and try to write about it. Or what you were saying earlier about the ESPN jabroni radio host that you referred to when – uh, that conversation was happening with Dana White where he made those comments about how Holly Holmes' team really messed up by even taking the fight. And wow, it was a dumb move by her manager who, with whom Dana White is just trying to settle old scores here. Uh, and when you listen to the audio of that, once he starts going off on this rant about, uh, Holly Holmes' manager, Lenny Frescas, they're just cracking up. They yeah. can't, they're, you're, you're giggling. They can't get enough of it. And you're like, if you had Roger Goodell on and he was going off on a rant about how dumb like a team owner was or a, or a particular athlete's uh, manager was, you would not have this response. You're, you're, you're treating this differently just because you kind of want to bro down with the UFC president and you're not thinking about it the way you think of the other sports. Uh, that question, by the way, was from Ben Smith from Haysham, England. Okay. So sorry that I cut his name off of the uh, the master list. Yeah, I think you have some questions on yours that I don't have on mine. Yeah, we got some late-breaking ones that, that you didn't get. We might have answered all those uh 
Well, here's one from Trevor Loden who wrote, With McGregor, Rousey, Page, and Sage all with an L in their latest fights, the UFC needs to find its next star fast. Who will it be? My money is on Aljamain Sterling. Uh, man, I would love nothing more than for Aljamain Sterling to be the next big star of the UFC since clearly he there's a, a lot of uh, innate charisma there. Uh, he's got his own style, uh, and and I think he handles the media interactions well. Uh, but with the UFC, it's eternally seems like this question of like, how are you going to react to this guy's business moves? Like, how are you? And with Aljamain Sterling, it's how are you going to react to the fact that this guy like tried to do a contract holdout sort of to to get more money? Because you, in the past, we've seen the UFC, uh, you know, get into business entanglements with various fighters and damned if it didn't seem like the fight company held a grudge for yeah. at least a while. It seems like that's one of the things the UFC has done consistently and well over the years is hold a grudge. Uh, you know, though, I still keep wondering that when we seem to be seeing a movement for fighters standing up for themselves a little more in contract negotiations and just being a little more vocal about that stuff. You hear Roy McDonald, I believe he was on the Fortnite today, talking about how uh, he's on the last fight of his deal and um, is, is going to be looking to get paid. I think if you start to see that just more commonly where – fewer people are, are scared to discuss that stuff, then it will become less uh, common to see the UFC kind of crack down on those guys who start uh, getting out there and perpetuating a narrative that they don't like. I think you'll have to work with those guys a little more just because you won't have much of a chance. The question I have with Aljamain Sterling is if he could manage to be a, a breakout star at bantamweight, he'd be the first, basically. That would be pretty you know, huge. That would be... We, we have not really seen too many legit stars uh, come out of that division. Although, you know, I think he has a lot of personality and, and skills that could do that. I think the thing we need, though, is if the Page and Sage experiment has taught us anything, it's that there's there's trouble to be found when you decide in advance who your stars are going to be, but rather than seeing your stars appear in the fights. Right. When you decide, okay... The good-looking young blonde kids, those are our stars, and we're going to run out telling everybody they're our stars, and we're going to treat them and pay them like the stars. Um, and then it doesn't work out the way you think it's going to once they actually get in the fights. Uh, and you also, like, you create the urge toward a backlash for those people when people see you giving them stuff they haven't earned yet. Um, maybe the thing to do would be to sit back and wait a little bit and let your stars reveal themselves. And Aljamain Sterling would be one of those guys that's, making his case. Yeah. And you know, the other thing that I think to keep in mind is how quickly this can happen for, uh, you know, for those stars to appear and maybe for those stars to disappear in the case of uh, Ronda Rousey, who's now been gone for a while. But like, if you would, uh, would have asked us prior to April, 2013, unless you were a person who paid particularly close attention to the Irish MMA scene, you probably would not have been, Oh, Conor McGregor, is about to take the entire sport by storm. Right. So, like, to ask who is the next big-time star, I think it's really hard to say. Uh, I mean, just if you're looking at the existing UFC roster, I think it would be awesome to see somebody like Habib uh, or Tony Ferguson develop into a kind of marketable star with with an exciting fighting style. Uh, I think it would be kind of huge for them if they could get that title on, on Wonderboy Thompson. Uh, although, you know... He's, he's got kind of a stiff test now against, uh, uh, McDonald, but like, 
You know, there's a dude with a down home flat top haircut and a and a an affable style and a, a crazy spin kicks. So kind of the total package there uh, until I guess prior to we see in his ground game. I think the best thing that ever happened to Stephen Thompson was Sage Northcutt coming in the UFC. Sage Northcutt is so far cornier and <laughs> does does not have the same skills at least yet that that Stephen Thompson does. Uh, Stephen Thompson just seems like suddenly way more likable and way less insufferable. Uh, and can we just say Joanna Yo- Jacek? Oh, yeah. Who seems like is everyone's favorite already, but just needs to kind of break break into the big time. Uh, Thug Rose, I think, in that same division has uh, tremendous star power. Uh, but again, it's just totally impossible to predict. Not only the whims of the company, which oftentimes seem to vacillate uh, tremendously from one day to the next, but also like kind of like the whim of, of the public. Like hard to know that a dude like Conor McGregor is just going to suddenly catch fire and be the, the guy that everyone on SportsCenter wants to interview. Yeah. All right, let's do one one more question. Short, shortish one if we've got one. Okay, I'm going to do the opposite of that and read along. Okay, great. I'm glad um, that everyone is just catering to my wishes. This okay. one is from Adam P. Writes, here's an email for your ain't nothing happening week. Oh, we're already off to a bad start, Adam. I, I went out on a limb for you here. <laughs> I feel like I'm the fabled middle core viewer you were theorizing about the other week. I'm no shit-eating wild man to be sure, but I certainly love the UFC and have watched every pay-per-view since UFC 100, as well as most of the smaller shows. However, I do not have cable, and the $50 price tag for UFC pay-per-views seems crazy to me. I pay for Fight Pass. I think it's an okay deal. I get to watch the pay-per-views about a month after they come out, as well as the Fight Card... I guess he means Fight Pass events. Uh... Or fight night events, and I can watch most of the past matches for fighters that I happen to be interested in at the moment. Other than that, I listen to your podcast and read the random UFC article that shows up on my Google feed. Certainly, I would like to watch all the uh, events live. That's just not financially possible. Do you think I'm unusual, or do I represent a significant chunk of serious UFC fans out there? Along those lines, I feel like the UFC would get just as much money out of me, if not more, if they charged $20 a month for Fight Pass and gave subscribers the pay-per-views for free. I would pay for it. Please discuss. I don't think that this person is that unusual. And I think like we're so entrenched in the sport. I think if you take a step back and really think about it, sometimes it does seem crazy that people drop $60 on a pay-per-view, uh, some of them every month. And once again, even though we've said it before on the podcast, like speaks to a level of engagement and like, uh, uh, a passion from the fan base that sometimes it feel like, feels like the company itself even does not deserve. Yeah. Well, you know, and especially now that there are so many pay-per-views, I remember when uh, like when we were just out of grad school and I had moved to New York and still trying to keep up on everything. And that was kind of when Anderson Silva first burst on the scene uh, and became UFC middleweight champion. And I can remember being like, okay, I've got to see Anderson Silva versus Rich Franklin. Like, I've got to see that event. But there's just no – like, I don't think I had cable at the time. There's And I, I tried to watch one event, one pay-per-view event by paying for it on the internet. And it was a disaster just because the technology was not at that point yet. Uh, and so then it was, okay, do you want to go to a bar, maybe pay a cover fee, and try to sit there and drink your drink slowly enough that you're not just paying way more than you would just to, to watch the pay-per-view, just stick around in this bar and watch it. And depending on where you live, 
that could be a little difficult, especially in New York at the time. It was just like we'd go around to the bars in our neighborhood in Queens and be like, are you showing the UFC pay-per-view? And they'd just be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Get out of here. Are you going to buy something? Uh, and so you'd have to go to some bar in Manhattan and there's only like a few you could find. Um, and it, it, if I had to do that once a month to keep up with the UFC uh, and being relatively poor as I was back then, I don't know that I'd do it. And if if Adam P is watching these pay-per-view events a month after they happen, uh, that is a type of shit-eating wild man, I yes, think. Yes, it is. Yeah, to still maintain so your interest in that stuff. Uh, because for me, a lot of the interest is you don't know what's going to happen. Once right. I know what's going to happen, it's you don't feel that same kind of energy for it. Yeah, man, you're out here spending $60 a month on a pay-per-view. You don't really have an excuse not to pre-order a guy's hardback book or, say, the Kindle edition, which only costs 14 bucks. Here we go. I don't know, man. Currently available where all books are sold. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week, I guess, to break down the stuff that happens at UFC Fight Night 85 this weekend uh, and then figure out something else to do and hashtag ain't shit going on. Hashtag maybe shit going on? Maybe shit going on. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. When you say available wherever books are sold, you mean not available. Available for pre-order wherever books are sold. So you, you can get that shit on Amazon. It's on iBooks now. You can find it at the, your local independent bookseller. You can go there and pick it up.